This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project, teachers teaching teachers. My name is Noah Waspy, and today is one heck of an episode. Today, I'm joined by Stacy Reeder, an OWP alum. Uh, she's active in the OWP community. She's even teaching a class with Jason Palmieri, who we talked to last time. She's teaching a class with him this summer. And on top of that, we have another guest. Liz Prather has returned to talk to us once again, and there's a really good reason why. We'll get to it in just a minute. But first, a poem. This poem is called You Met by Aaron Delk, who is also a member of the OWP community. You Met. That handshake was an earthquake. Melted welder's hands embraced by soft computer keys, shaking my heart into taking a portrait stored next to the memories of pine trees and hide and seek. You were fragile but strong, like glass that hadn't quite cracked, holding on longing to say goodbye as I hid my teary eyes and treasured the gift I would remember the rest of my life. Okay, so on to today's episode. I think we talk about it a little bit toward the middle of this interview, but a few months ago, I sent out a tweet asking if any other teachers out there had tried something that I was calling metacogscription, which is writing about your writing. And Stacy Reader replied, another friend uh, of mine named Lydia O'Connor replied, and Liz Prather replied because Liz was writing a book about student identity in writing and metacogscription, or as she called it, meta-writing, was playing a really big role in the process. She had a, several prompts that she sent to me that these that other teachers could try out who joined in in this project. And Stacy tried them out. Lydia tried them out. And Lydia was not well enough. She was feeling under the weather, so she couldn't join us for this interview. But Stacy was able to join us. And I thought we were going to just talk about meta writing the whole time. But we ended up talking about something bigger. We ended up talking about student identity. And it started when Liz Prather asked Stacy Reader about her past life before she was a teacher when she worked as a marketer. So check it out. Here's my interview with Stacy Reeder and Liz Prather. It's actually shocking the, the comparisons because the number one thing, and it, it's actually exactly what I learned through this action research too, kids don't know what they have to say and marketing is built around knowing what you have to say and your identity and putting your business's identity in the foreground. And it's the things students struggle with the most as writers. They don't wanna spend the time to develop what they have to say. They're, un, they're insecure, I've learned through all of this process about their voice and whether it will be accepted out in the world. And because they have all of those things, 
their message is muddy and unclear yes. sometimes. And that's the antithesis of what good marketing has to be, where it has to be clear and specific and yeah. all of those things. And all the pre-work that goes into writing is similar in marketing, where you have to do your market research, you need to conduct it empathy interviews, you need to know who you're marketing to and what your brand identity is out in the world. And the kids, they need a brand identity, right? To your point about the book, them having an identity themselves. And because they're in the throes of developing that, it makes it hard for them as writers. And so I feel like there's so many parallels, (laughs) so many, so many things. And sometimes I'm struck by it in the middle, like where we're learning something and I think, oh gosh, that's the same problem I dealt with there is this is the same problem you're having now. So it's very similar. You know, like uh, sometimes when as teachers will say like kids and then we'll say how they responded to a lesson or how kids are. And I usually try to shy away from those generalizations. But this one is speaking to me because I remember being a kid and feeling insecure about who I was as a writer and not knowing what to do with it. All I knew is, and I think that this is common for any kid who wants to be creative or is creative all I knew is I wanted to do something interesting and original but I didn't know who I was so it was really hard to do that when they prejudge themselves because of that like when we one of the last things that we ended up talking about Noah when I did the reflective listening to go back and say why is it harder for you to self-reflect when it's it's not based on a prompt of, or some sort of exploratory writing based on a prompt, but it's just about how you're doing and where you see challenge and where you want some more support. They, they just couldn't say it. And I didn't understand why not until I asked them. And when I listened to them, they, this is what so many of them said. I don't want anyone to read my writing and judge what I have to say. They're so worried about it. And I get it. You know, they're 11 and 12 years old and their peers and their peer impression to their peers Mm -hmm. means a lot yet they want to be individual a lot of them even said it's hard to reflect when we know someone else is going to read it Mm -hmm. because we don't want you know there's that fear of judgment or evaluation Mm -hmm. inside of the reflection they said all those things and all of them nodded while we were talking about it they were all seemingly in agreement because to your point Noah you think well I don't want to take this broad stroke but they were all like yeah yeah that's how we feel yeah Yeah. I was like wow I had no idea you know 85 kids feel this way to a large degree it's a big deal no um I I remember being a teenager and I know that this is still the case because it's published in books like yardsticks you'll never you always feel like everybody's looking at you when you're a kid the reality is everybody's looking at themselves and wondering if everybody's looking at them but (laughs) no matter how much you say that you can't change the way someone feels at this age really maybe even any age right but Stacy can you give us a little context to what you just talked about because I know you and I have been talking about this for a while and I know Liz and I have been talking about this for a while what was the what was what was the problem that we were trying to solve so when we started out, Noah and I were working together, we, my pathway in my action research was going to be about self-assessment and reflection. And it was just headed down that sort of broad general path. And the first two places I went were to use some of Liz's prompts, the one about perfectionism from Rebecca Solnit and the one from Barbara Kingsolver about what do you have to say? Because it was the two problems that I see in my students routinely year after year is that idea of perfectionism that shuts them down as well as I don't wanna spend the time and or I don't know what I have to say, so I don't know what to write. So they were so um, awesome in those first 
the things that they had to say, rich, detailed, honest, it was great. And then I asked them, so I designed quarter four based on their voice. They had choice portfolios. They got to decide everything about what they wanted to write with some parameters and ways to sort of streamline their thinking. And it was awesome until I asked them how it was going. And I was like, so what challenges are you facing? What teaching do you think you need to keep going? And the answers were just these rote, very bland, sort of non-detailed, it was blah. And so we came to our meeting on a weekend and I said, I, they had so much to say before and now they had nothing to say. And I don't know why, like, why did they not have anything to say? So Noah said, well, ask them, right? You know, obviously, duh, ask them. <laughs> they'll know and go through that a really specific reflective listening process. So we did that. And that's, those were the outcomes then that came from that where they were so honest and it was all these awful things that you know are true that you didn't want them to have to say, but there they were staring yeah. you right in the face. Like, you know, perfectionism shuts me down. The fact that we give a writing grade in my district separate from reading, um, that they feel like they can't take risks because then their writing is evaluative. It's just everything you have a hunch about they said, and with each passing comment, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is the antithesis of what you want, but we did it to you. Like, I, I know, I know guys, like, I know this is what happens. And you think you have this classroom that's open. And I ask them all the time how it's going, but that's still how they feel. So that's how well, I because because Stacey, you're, you're working within a system. So your classroom is an oasis in a larger system, which asks them not to be themselves. Yep. They have to actually not be themselves to be able to be successful in the way we've, in, we've created writing pedagogy, unfortunately. So true. Yeah. It's so, so true. And they, I feel like this year I changed a lot about my writing after taking Ohio Writing Project's teaching of writing four-week course. And I took lots of risks in my classroom this year with the kids and they came along willingly as kids do. You know, they, they were so gung-ho to try everything I asked them to do. And yet they're still their truths that they've carried already. The baggage of just seven years of education, formal yeah. education is exactly what you just said, Liz. They, they feel like they have to fit in this box and it's, it's the opposite of what we say we want in a learner profile or all these things we create. And um, we do things that undermine it. So it was, they were so honest. Um, that was such a great conversation. I'm so glad I had it. Yeah, it's becoming a through line in this podcast. In the last episode, I was talking with Jason Palmieri about um, doing multi-genre, multimodal kinds of kind of work. And there are lots of challenges that come up, and almost all of the challenges stem from the hundreds of years of conditioning against progressive kinds of practices in education. Um, and it's hard to overcome, isn't it? So let's give a, even more context. <laughs> I think we started in the middle. So let's rewind a little bit to the beginning. Um, stay, I put out a tweet a while back about what I called metacogscription or something. I, don't, I came up with a dumb word for it. It's just writing about your writing is a way I liked of, it. It's why I responded. Right? Like, what's this? Yes, I I'll said, do it. <laughs> it just sounded dumb coming out of my mouth in that moment. And I felt self-conscious. Maybe it wasn't dumb. Anyway, and it turns out that Liz has been doing this work for a while. She re she sent me a message and Stacy replied. And we just, Stacy and I started trying to think through ways that we could get kids writing about their writing. Um, and Liz, you've been doing this kind of work for a while as part of a bigger project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so... Um... I found exactly what Stacy found when I launched project-based writing, and this was in 2012, 
or 2010, 2012, there was two years there that I was kind of like moving my English class into this more project-based uh, foundation. And that's exactly what I discovered is, and they would say to me, they would say, yes, I understand that you're trying to do something different, but the entire system is set up against us. You know, we are, so, so I said, well, what, what do you need to do? What do I need to do? Like how, and, and one of the things I talked about was that you treat us in this class like writers. And I said, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, is it the way I talk to you or is it the autonomy or what is, and they were like, well, we do the things that writers do. And one of the things they told me they identified that writers do is they talk about writing they talk about writing and making choices about writer writing you know and they I asked them because I use a lot of prompts like the Solnit prompt and the King Solver prompt and you know uh, other prompts that are built on what they called what they consider real writers now I would never call them that I would never say that in a classroom but that's what my kids call them real writers when they identified with what real, that real writers were having the exact same problems as their own in their own process, that became to me the real turning point for writing about writing. And I was sold after that. So I just started, I started cultivating something called, and this is not original with me, but it's just a process called start the day off right. And it's just a bell ringing process. And so I have three options in that. And one of them is a meta write prompt. And so the meta-write prompts that I were getting back were, 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 more, were richer and more, I don't know, I, I, I wish I had done more action research than like you're talking about, Stacey, so that I could have actually tracked if the kids who consistently chose that prompt as opposed to another prompt, which was more creative and another, I had three prompts. One was personal, uh, it was a personal narrative prompt, whatever. One was take a line for a walk and I'd put a poem up and the other one was a meta write prompt and it was a craft prompt about writing. So they were writing about writing. I wish I had tracked the kids that consistently chose that prompt to see if their writerly self-regard increased as a result of participating in this very writerly practice. So that's kind of that's where I came from. And that's where from 2010 until now, I've been using those meta write prompts and I've developed quite a few of those. So I shared, I think I shared about 50 with you. Mm -hmm. Is that right, Stacey? Yeah. Okay, yeah, about 50. And it's interesting that you chose the one, the, uh, the King Solver, and you said those were the ones that they really hit because I've, there's something about the meta writes that are grounded in the practice of quote unquote real writers that mm -hmm. kids respond to because they see themselves, they are seen and they know that feeling that an actual writer that's been published also is giving voice to. Well, they're so hard on themselves. They assume, they to the point you made, they assume they're the only people who struggle with perfectionism. They assume that they're the only people who don't always know what they have to say. They think that no one else goes through the things they go through because of the age that they are. And sometimes we all sort of think that. And so, they even said to me in one of the most recent reflections, we hear all these authors speak and they talk about how it takes them years to write, but we have this little tiny time to write and we expect our results to be these big, amazing, awesome things, but we write this big and they write this big for years. You know, you just said, I've been doing this since, you know, 10 years ago. It's a decades long process. You guys have a days long process and they, they just, they're like, they had that aha moment through this. And they would never have had that if I didn't take the time to give them time to write about it. So I, 
wow. I mean, it's just been a great three months just doing this little bit of stuff. I had totally be re been reignited to the power of action research. <laughs> you know, I got started with just getting interested in this meta writing, meta conscription, whatever we're going to call it, just because I took on a little challenge with some friends of writing every day for a few months and um, not just writing every day, like we were already probably writing every day, but sharing it with each other, posting it to a common place. And one thing I noticed is on days when I didn't have an idea, I would just write about how it was going with the other projects I was doing on the sides. And I realized, oh, this is something that students could do. Maybe it's just something they could do if they're out of writing ideas. Maybe it's something we could do like the way Sarah Zerwin has students writing letters about their process. This is something I need to be doing more often in a lot of different ways. Do either of you do meta writing? Um, I do now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. I didn't prioritize it for myself before. And I don't know. I don't know why, you know, you because I do think that way. Speaking and writing are my two best ways to think. And I, I just didn't, you know, I don't know. You just get busy. You don't. But this process slowed me down to think, and it's probably been more powerful as a planning tool for what to do with my students than anything else I was doing. Mm -hmm. But until you do it and see, you don't realize, like it's driven more about what I did in the fourth quarter than probably anything else I would have done without it. So mm -hmm. why wasn't I doing it? I had time. <laughs> I don't know. Why, you know, why not? <laughs> well, it just didn't occur. You can't right. think of every, you can't, um, think of and employ every single idea simultaneously. That's, our brains aren't capable yet. No, not yet. Once, we, once they merge us with machines, maybe. But um, <laughs> so um, what are some of the things that you've noticed um, in your classroom since you've been using MetaWrites? Um, I think my kids feel like their voice is valued. I, I always felt like I was showing and doing that and was always my intention to do it but i think the time we've devoted to it in this most recent time during this research i think they feel heard more because it was prioritized and we know that right whatever you put forth in the it was just prioritized and i think then they understood maybe more why i was asking them so when we had this fourth quarter portfolio choice portfolio we were just designing success criteria, like how are you going to know when you've done it? And that was probably the better part of that process that I've ever been through because the pre-work leading up to that conversation was, I hear you, you're valued, you were the reason we designed quarter four writing the way we did because I heard you. And I, I so I think that's my biggest takeaway is that by prioritizing that kind of writing, they felt valued and heard and part of a process when that was always my goal. Um, this just was a more successful way maybe to get there. Mm. Yeah, I would say that um, the MetaWrite is definitely the students feel heard, but they also, I feel like they step into the room differently. Yeah. I don't know. Like when I switched from having my first two days of class being, who are you? You know, like asking questions for an interest inventory or just getting to know you icebreakers instead of saying, who are you? Asking the question, who are you as a writer? Just that, that very small shift in introducing the classroom and saying, 
in this room, we are not just about who we are, but who we are as thinkers and writers and readers. And so that felt to me like a big switch and meta writing was part of that. I, I operate on this principle and it has, it has its basis in theology, mm. but it is, it's, it's this tension of already not yet. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's, it's the idea that they're already writers. Kids are already writers and they're already thinkers and they're already readers, but they're not yet where they want to be. And so what, what teachers have to do, I feel like to really be able to, to leverage what is already there and not destroy what is already there and actually to center and prioritize what is already there, which would be their social identities their self identities, their language choices, their background, their, what the stories they read, the, the video games they play, all of those things. We have to major on the already and usher in the not yet, like give them kind of the school, the skills, which is the more flexible of those things. So that's kind of what I saw is just, it's a tiny shift. It's really a tiny shift, but it pays huge dividends. Well, and what you just said about the, the already and not yet is so powerful too, because a lot of my kids were noticing um, what I thought was maybe positive feedback to them about their writing um, still made them feel in the end because things feel assessed all the time at school mm -hmm. that it, it was maybe dinging their confidence more than I wanted versus building them up to try even again and go back to their work again. They see editing and revising sometimes as fixing work as opposed to improving their writing or their process or you know just what they have to say and honing it. They don't see it as honing yet because that point that you made like I'm already this and I'm I'm not yet this and the gap between that is where I struggle. And so then I don't want to mire myself and struggle. So I just won't do it. And when I was putting all that together, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, if you don't feel you can go back and improve next time you do it, why would you put yourself back in that vulnerable spot? So then they just don't want to do it. And even though we think we're being positive, um, they've learned that that's not how school always works when it comes to writing. Yeah. It's like the Joseph Campbell kind of thing. Instead, I'll dumb it down. It's like the Luke Skywalker kind of thing where uh, he's had that thing already in him, but it's not been tapped into yet. And he needs the uh, mentor archetype to help him see that he has it, teach him how to hone the force, whatever it is. And then once he, like in Return of the Jedi, Luke Skywalker is noticeably different because he knows that he has it and who he is. And Liz, I'm, I'm talking about this ad nauseum because I know that this is a through line just from talking to you before the podcast, talking to you last time we interviewed, reading your work. This is a key component in the work that you do. It's, I, anyone who's read your work knows that the big thing that you're always trying to help students to see is that they are writers and that they can do things that writers do and they don't need a teacher always guiding them. You're just there to ignite the spark and you show them some, and you wean them toward that autonomy. So I was kind of curious about if you, to see if you could talk a little bit more about some of the ways you're working right now to help students identify as the Jedi writers that they are so that they can come into these pieces, not with more confidence. I don't know if any writer ever has the, that massive amount of confidence, but maybe less less fear? 
Yeah, it is so hard because you need you need all the things that fear gives you to be a writer. So you need to feel like you're going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> But you also have to be willing to know that on the other side of feeling like you're going to get sick because you're going to take this risk because you're going to tell the tr truth and you're going to tell your story that the, that the payoff is that I'm going to tell my story and tell the truth about it. And that is that does multiple things for a kid. It it was it's able, you know, you're using writing as a means to say, I am here. The world is passing before me. Right. But at the same time, they're building skill in doing so. And at the same time, you're fortifying an identity that will they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. And so when I think about that, the little switches, the little tiny switches that I've had to make that I have to remind myself are things like, who are you and or who are you as a writer instead of just saying, who are you? And changing the word, Stacy, like you said, making sure that when they say, I need to fix this, that we don't use, we don't use binary language, like good and bad writing. Hmm. And we don't, we don't say things like fixing and, and, you know, the remedy, and we're going to, we're going to fix this piece. And, you know, it's little things like that, that I think that have been a real change for me. Um, and this is the filter through which I make all those decisions. Would this help me as a writer? So would this, would this help me as a writer? If it helps me as a writer, it's going to help my students because if I conceive of them as being writers already and they just, not, they just have not yet curated a portfolio of like skills, not, I'm not talking mechanical skills, I'm talking about emotion, social emotional skills to overcome because I still feel scared. I still have comparison, you know, like comparison fears. And so if I'm having all those things, I still feel like, I mean, I have imposter syndrome. I was working this morning on a chapter, the last chapter of the book. <laughs> I'm just beating my head up against the wall because I don't know how to organize the chapter. I, I want to say, it's kind of like what you said. No, I want to say all the things at once and that's impossible. So I have to create a logical chain. Well, how do you get a kid to create a logical chain when he's been told or she's been told or they've been told that the key to writing is to is correct sentences, mm -hmm. yep. you know? And so I think it's just for me, it's as a writer, I am trying to move it through that gate. Is this something that would be effective for me as a writer? And if it doesn't, if it's not effective for me as a writer, I'm thinking that that's, I don't know if that answered your question, no, <laughs> but that's kind of the way I see, that's kind of the way I see this. Yeah. Well, I, I want to dig deeper and I also want to backtrack to something that you just said, because I think that you hit on a blind spot for me as a teacher that I'm just now realizing. So I want you to teach me just a little bit more. What you said about not using language like good, bad, or fixing, that's something that I I, that's a, a mistake that I think I make, but I'm not realized, I've never realized it until just now when you said that. <laughs> so what kind of language do you use instead? We use effective or not effective. Mm. So, and what that does, when you say effective or not effective, then you have to ask the writer, well, what was your goal? 
So what was your goal in this? So I have a student has decided as a senior, she wanted to write a bunch of open letters to places inside the school. So she wrote an open letter to the cafeteria, an open letter to the front lawn, an open letter to our room, our classroom, an open letter to the principal's office, an mm-hmm. open letter to the halls. Okay, so the band room. Okay, so her tone. Okay, so, so here, here's, here's the thing. All six of the open letters have some sort of weird undercurrent that she never mentions. It's something that happened to her that changed her from her sophomore year to her junior year. So on the surface of these letters, it's about these places. But in the kind of this the 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 big under the big theme, the big thing, the big mystery, the meaning is that she's referring to something that changed her life, but she never tells the reader what it is. So when she brings this to inquiry, we have to ask her, are you doing this because you are scared to reveal what it is that happened to you between your sophomore and junior year? Or do you wanna keep it a a mystery? And or like, what are your aims for this piece? Mm. And so just having that conversation right there. So does that mean like it's wrong or it's bad? I mean, who's to say? Who's Mm -hmm. to say whether it's wrong or bad, right? Have you read, um, oh, what's the book? I just have it over here somewhere. Hang on just a second. (laughs) (laughs) It's here. It's here. Craft in the real world. Craft in the real world. Craft in the real world. Who's that by? It's Matthew. I'm going to get his name wrong. Salesis, I believe. So he teaches creative writing and he basically says the traditional writing workshop is basically uh, there is a set idea for what pieces need to look like Mm -hmm. and so they need to have a beginning middle and end they need to have act one act two act three they need to Mm -hmm. follow the hero's journey they need to have gustav's fry is it gustav freitag's pyramid they need to follow (laughs) this you know what if you have a kid who tells stories circularly Mm -hmm. what if you have a kid who comes from a different oral tradition like from an appalachian tradition where there is no ending yes okay no, that's it. That's all I was just going to say. <laughs> these are the kinds of things that he brings up. Now, obviously, he's he's talking about uh, creative writing MFA programs, mm-hmm. and he's talking about that. But that was my takeaway. It was like, oh, this is such a this is an illuminating moment when I was thinking, yeah, like if we're really going to give students autonomy as writers, then they have to have autonomy as writers. And who are we to say that these are right or wrong? Who says things are right or wrong to me? Well, it's going to be my editor. It's going to, you know, as a writer, it's going to be my editor. It's going to be beta readers. Mm -hmm. It's going to be, and they're not going to say right or wrong. They're going to say, what is, they're going to ask me in this paragraph, what was your goal? And are you meeting that goal? And how could you then best meet that goal? Mm -hmm. What could you do? Well, as I'm listening to Liz talk here, I, I'm struck by something. I made that shift a little bit in the fourth quarter based on this work, which was me changing, making sure I wasn't doing the good or bad, right? And I'm always struck and have been for the last few years, probably OWP inspired that you're always teaching the writer, not the piece of writing. And I think as a school system, we tend to teach pieces of writing. You know, it's that old, the old four by four, we're going to write we're, this quarter, we are writing narratives and they're going to have the following components. And it was so sort of formulaic for kids that I think they got locked into this mode that 
we always write for, and that's someone else's purpose. That's not theirs. That's somebody else's. And when it's someone else's, they don't own any part of that. And they just know they're going to be evaluated and none of them is in it. And some, one of my kids said that in one of the very first, that Barbara King solver prompt, I'm not in this, like, I'm not in writing that's like that but I'm in writing when I develop my own purpose, when I realize I have something to say, an argument, like we're putting the cart before the horse, right this way, but you have nothing to say. And then they're trying to cram in something they could say to fit the process instead of, I have this to say, what's the best way to put it? And I was struck by that when I read um, Shauna Coppola's book, Writing Redefined last summer, because she was, you know, the form chooses me. And that's what I've been trying to tell my kids all along. Why are you making a, I'm going to make a poster to share my comparative analysis of Malala in these four texts. Well, why are you making a poster? Well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like, well, what, what are you trying to say? Well, I don't know. You know, there was, you know, they, they just, the, it's the cart before the horse. I'm deciding this published thing because I'm going to have to turn it in, right? So I have to figure out how I'm going to publish it to you to make it audience ready for you to read. And it it's not the a normal, like, log, there's no logic in there. And I, I guess normal is not the word I was looking for, but like logical. It didn't stem from any real reason. It was, I'm going to, you're going to need to see it. I'm going to try to figure out how you're going to see it. Um, all, uh, ah, <laughs> like stop it. Yeah. Don't do that. Say what you have to say. And are you meeting your purpose? What were you trying to say? Um, and are you getting it done? I've had my kids ask that recently in peer conferencing. Go with the question. This is what I was shooting for. Did I do it? Right. Let me say, let me say this also. You hit on a really great point, Stacey. The kids go, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know. And that's why writing conferences teachers always tell me that's the number one that's the number one question when I go to conferences is how do you do writing conferences mm -hmm. and the, the problem is is because you get in a writing conference with a kid and you ask the kid why did you lead with this or what is and they're like, I don't know and the reason is there is no they have no there's no in exigency there's no reason why they've come to the page to say what they're trying to say because it was my idea. It was the institutional, you know, whatever, the on-demand prompt or whatever. And so that's why writing conferences are so torturous for both the teacher and the mm -hmm. writer, mm -hmm. because neither of them, neither the teacher nor, nor the student writer, really, it's just been imposed instead of organically coming from the intersection of their lives and their families and their truth. Stacey, you're exactly right. So they say, I don't know, you tell me. Yep. which would be a fair, which would be a really fair thing for a kid to say to me. I don't know. You tell me, you gave me the assignment. <laughs> and, let, and let's go even further. There's another piece of it uh, that I've been thinking about as you both were talking, like, you know, when I think about what makes an exciting, fulfilling piece of writing, it's the tools that we have as writers that we've learned from our mentor texts or just from our voice, our personality. It's the vision that we had for the piece. And then there's like an element of magic and I don't really know another way to describe it. It could be like the intuition. It could be the inspiration. It could be the discovery. It could be the luck, the fun, um, the release. There's magic. And one thing that can, I've noticed happening that I, in myself as a writer when I was in school, or one thing I've accidentally done to students, is we lose the magic part of it. Because if you have too, if you're trying to put too much emphasis on the tools, you're losing the fun and the magic. If you put too much emphasis on executing the vision, 
there's a lot of the vision that's undefined when you start writing a piece in many cases. And a lot of that vision comes to fruition because of the magic. And if we force, I know my main mistake that I've made in writing conferences is forcing too much of the tools, forcing too much of the vision. And I know that happened to me too as a writer. My teacher would see all these things wrong with it and I would go to fix them. And by the time I fixed them, I had no idea what the hell to do with the rest of the piece because it was just, I'd lost all the magic. How do we keep the magic in balance? I think is the question that we're maybe getting at. Well, I think um, if, you, if you do keep the magic in balance, you'll destroy the magic. I mean, that's part of, that's part of the mystery. I mean, isn't it? It truly is. <laughs> um, I think it's, you know, it, I think St. Augustine said, if, if you think you know God, then it's not God. And it's kind of like, if you, if you have figured it out, if we have been able to quantify it and we can assess it and we can routinize it and concretize it and put it on a, a you know, a six by six rubric sheet, then it's not magic. It's not mystery, and there is an element, and that is that that is how that that's what drives the the generals and the politicos of education crazy is because there's a part of learning which is just wild. It's wild. It's feral. It's untrainable, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's you can't. I don't know. You can only create conditions under which it can thrive, but you can't create it for a kid, and the kid himself or herself or themselves, they, they are going to be as accepting or not accepting of that as to how safe they feel in that. Well, and the, the things that they'll come up with aren't things that fit in any educational box you would have ever seen. So when I had a kid this year who it was a pretty good, you know, so he comes to sixth grade as this really pretty proficient um, by all standards, mechanical writer, but he was pretty disengaged from what he had to say. And in the course of reading and involving himself in the process of doing the work of learning, he said, you know what I really like to do? I really realized I like to make um, graphic, graphic representations. Like I like comics. So for my fourth quarter writing, can I dive in and write everything I want to write, no matter what I want to say? Can I do it through a lens of Norse mythology? <laughs> like, yes, you can. And also, I would never have told you to do that. So <laughs> sure you can. And can I ask why you, why that? You know, just the things they think you, I can't be all those writers. I'm not all those writers. So when they come up with these things that it makes perfect sense, in their brain, we continually could shut that down and say, but that's not, that's not what's going to be on the AP test. And that's not the way that students must write. We could go that route, right? And evaluate that out of him. Or can he pursue it for the whole quarter? Yes, please. And he wrote a ton and created a ton and wrote in all different kinds of modes through that form and found all kinds of connections that he never would have if I would have said, oh, don't do that. You know, instead, I was like, yes, goodbye. Go do it. You're excited. Go do it. See what you learn. Stacey, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I just think what a game changer. Saying yes can be, you know, just saying yes. When I put together the choice portfolio because of what they told me they wanted to do in the fourth quarter as writers, really, they've never written more. They wrote more. My kids wrote more this year than they've ever written. I took more risks as a writing teacher than I've ever taken. And by being more 
free to do that or just giving myself the permission to say yes more than I said no. I think if my kids could reflect back, I asked them to, I hope I, their letters, I hope are awesome. I told them to write themselves a letter at the end of the year, just what did you learn about yourself as a writer and what you have to say? And I hope that those are awesome because I see it um, because I said, yes, 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 go. Yes. <laughs> you want to, you want to write narrative the whole court? Yes. You want, you want to, oh, you found a place to argue. Yes. You just go, go do it. And then let me know how I can help you. It changes everything. So Stacy, my question to you then is how do we convince uh, the, the kind of like institution that creative writing is uh, to me seems to be like the gateway to a lot of those discoveries for kids i don't know if you've uh, seen tom newkirk's new book unbound but what he does in this book is he interviews middle and high school fiction writers that work through the nanowrimo process um and exactly what you said is so critical because this kid can write about Norse mythology the entire year long, and you can have somebody sitting in the corner wringing their hands because he's not writing a persuasive essay or not writing a speech or whatever it is that the, he's supposed to be doing during that time in your curriculum. But he is still learning logic, and he's still learning rhetorical devices, and he's still learning process and organization and structure and tension and all of those things. So tell me this, Stacey, from your perspective, how can we make this shift so that the creative writing and the narrative and, and the ways that it's kind of like the parallel to reading is like when you talk about the camps between classic literature, the canon, and allowing students to read what they enjoy reading, right? So now we're like, here's the classic camp of you have to do an argumentative essay and expository informational whatever, and then this creative writing thing. Can you tell me how you think that's going to happen? Can we make the shift in our lifetimes? <laughs> that's what I always say to him like this will not happen in my career's life I mean like isn't gonna happen how can I I don't know so I so Shauna Coppola again that influence over the summer she was saying you know when you when you really look at NCTE standards or you look at writing standards in any form you really do see that all of the things we just talked about are really in there they're just embedded in there and so there are lots of, we tell our kids there are lots of pathways to learn, but yet like me sometimes feel constrained by this singular pathway as teachers. And I think the standardized tests hurt us, which we could go on for days, but the reason that they do is that the kind of writing that's valued in that space only has one form. And I've really been keyed in on these idea lately of transfer of learning. You know, how can I make my writing applicable to any writing situation I face versus um, these really narrow paths where everything's been decided for me. And, and that's the part where I want to do more thinking and working is that I should be preparing writers for any writing moment and helping them see that their voice and that the development of that voice can happen in any respect. And I, I really am struck by when I sit next to any of my kids and I talk to them about what's awesome about what they just did, I'm pointing out all these things. And to your point, if you write a listicle, which is a very modern form of writing, you're still organizationally, we just studied one the other day as a mentor. This has color-coded subheadings, a numerical structure, everything you wanna say is the top five of something. There are text features that supported what you had to write. My kids have made more intentional choice by me loosening up in a way some of the standards than when I say, 
use this single point checklist of things that good informative writing has and then but also be creative <laughs> i mean it, if, if it made sense to them they don't do it because then they think they'll be penalized in the scoring environment and so i do believe that that brain research the idea that learning can transfer that they can take what they know to be good and use it somewhere else i think that's going to drive what i try next year just how can I get what you need to do to transfer? It doesn't matter what your writing moment calls you to do, whether it's a time constrained prompt, like a testing environment or something where you have all year until you can finally develop this thing you were thinking about. All the, I should be preparing them from all that, not just the one thing or just right now, this one thing. You wanna write about it when you wanna write about it. Um, I don't know. You see kids disengaged from writing invitations, which I think are so cool. It's all around you. Write about anything. What did you notice when you took a walk? What did you notice when you were at the store with your mom? What did you notice at your soccer game? But they don't see that as something worth writing about, even though they know it is. Like, so we have to give them a chance to, I don't know, to be heard and to explore and all the low stakes writing of it all. You know, why does everything have to be big? It can be small. It can be a seed for later. Maybe you won't write about something you thought about today till, I don't know, five years from now, but it'll matter to you again when it matters to you. We don't respect any of that sometimes. We just, no. we just don't. <laughs> and this is too dated of a reference unless Hollywood reboots the Lassie franchise. But it makes <laughs> me think about Lassie. I, I think it was Lassie where the dog has to go away. And Timmy's like trying to get Lassie to leave and go. And it's such a struggle because Lassie is used to this world where dogs have been domesticated and have to live with their humans. <laughs> and to an extent, that's a piece of what we're talking about, right? Like students have been domesticated into the system and it doesn't feel safe to go out into the woods. It doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel safe for teachers either because I think a lot of teachers feel that they'll be, um, something punitive or their data won't look as good as someone else's or that that negative part of that transfer is mm -hmm. hard for teachers to reconcile with themselves um i always feel like if i'm doing what i feel is best and not me just whimsically going on some crazy wild thing i'm thinking about but really reading and keeping myself informed and trying things with kids and readjusting and being critical of myself with them um, if I have a lens that's informed, then I can take some risks and I can defend those. If you come to me and say, why did you make this choice in your classroom? This year, every choice I made, the volumes my kids have written, the risks they've taken, the things they've tried that they were uncomfortable with, I could celebrate all of that. And in the end, I, I'm just so hopeful that these letters, that they can celebrate their own journeys because they have grown so much. They have tried so much that they never would have if I didn't take some latitude and risk too. And I actually do still think they could write, you know, a great essay on their test. So I hope that translated too for them because in that moment that matters to them. And so I want them to feel good about that too. So many of our uh, societies and successful people, financially successful people, celebrities, did not like score do well in school. Probably over 50%, right? Like you listen to the interviews when they talk about themselves as kids and they didn't do well in school most of the time. And 
yet they're successful. Usually those stories though, the turning point is a single teacher and not the system. And Liz, it makes me wonder if the answer is like the system, it's gonna be too much for a person to change probably. Um, and I also wonder if maybe the system will pre present some of us with desirable difficulties like that foe that we need in our lives in order to overcome. As long as the school system isn't so bad that it kills people, which it is probably doing in some cases, but as long as it's not that bad, that bad, if we can focus on being the teacher, it just takes one sometimes, right? Yeah, I think so. And like, if you talk about genetic expression, you can have all the genetic markers for a disease or propensity, but it's only until the environment actually triggers that thing for it to be expressed. So think about your kid, he's out there wandering, she's out there, they're out there wandering through the world and they're just looking for an environment in which to unlimber. And here along comes Stacy. <clears throat> and this is the, this, this is, she's gonna create this environment in which the genetic expression of this student's writing identity is given a full bloom and full blossom. And then he will pass through that environment, but never be the same. I pause there. That might be a good end point for this episode. <laughs> it just makes it easier for me to cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, I pretty much said it, right? Right. I thought this was going to be an episode about meta writing. <laughs> but this is so <laughs> it is though, but you know, it stemmed it from it though. Yeah. I'll tell you, I mean, yeah. it, it's not that you didn't ever know to be metacognitive with kids before. Isn't it funny how when like just to the point of, that Liz just made about how you could be that for students being exposed to different people's ideas does that to you and it's like they weren't on your radar till they were on your radar so when I said yes to you know you put that prompt out there I had just heard um, some other podcast about annotate I saw a tweet about annotating writing I was like well duh like what a great idea that is having kids annotate their own writing and see what mm -hmm. they were thinking about that's smart and then I listened to a podcast where um, I, actually I wrote it down so I wouldn't even forget that Peter DeWitt was talking about um, Anderson's revised Bloom's taxonomy, which I really had never spent any time looking at. I've heard of revised Bloom's taxonomy, but I also like am a DOK kind of person. So I was more over there. And when I read that, the very height of that scale is metacognition, which of course. And so like all of those confluences come together and then learning that transfers and I'm like all these things. And so I've, I've been doing so much writing of my own, reflecting yeah. about what my kids were doing yeah. and doing that helps just synthesize where you want to head next. And it, it clarifies so much, even though I felt all over the place, maybe in the process, I now know what I want to try next year with kids and as an outgrowth of this. Mm -hmm. And I did more change in the fourth quarter based on what they had to say, because I let them write about what they were thinking about their own writing. Quick question. Other than the um, meta rights that actually use writers' uh, own experience and then the students saw themselves in their, in, you know, uh, Barbara King Solvers world, what would have been the next most successful for students making that shift from, uh, I don't have anything to say to, yeah, this is my experience. Like, is there another, are there another, is there another kind of meta right that has really hit for your kids? 
Um, one of the things I was struck by in the reflective listening process was the power of kids speaking before they write. So I did try and I've only done it once since that, because I just did that, that experience, that conversation was only a few weeks ago. One time since I asked them again to write about, um, if there's, if there's one thing that you could do in schools during your school day, that would help you have more to say as a writer, what would that thing be? And I asked them to talk first to each other and like find a partner and talk first. And then we found a second partner and talk first. And then they wrote. Uh -huh. And I felt like some of the things I just started reading them. We just did it this week, but some of that writing was more detailed and specific. And I, you know, I kind of forgot that I knew that, right. That if yeah. they can say it first and sort of that's a pre-writing, get their flow going, they right. said more. And so I, yeah. I will do that more. I think even in any kind of reflective practice, have them talk first then go to the page so that they can gather some thinking first because otherwise they just kind of sometimes wander around the page and they don't know what they're saying. So that's been really successful just in, in something, I think you could almost ask them anything and it would be better if I gave them a chance to talk first. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's been successful. That's great, yeah. yeah. And that's another thing that keeps coming, like I've been doing this podcast for a while and I did another podcast for Octella before this and it's something that keeps coming up in our dis in my discussions with people but it's something that I don't know happens enough in classrooms yet is that um, intentional procrastination the talking the conversations that we have with people when we're in the middle of a project that don't start out being about the project but then we start talking about it and then we're like oh this is what yes. I should do those kinds of conversations it's hard to figure out how to make room for those in a classroom but the more we try the more likely we are to stumble upon whatever that, I guess, again, magical yeah. thing is. Yeah, well, we can't think of everything. So when, when you're thinking about something and you say it to someone else, I'm an out loud processor myself. So when I say it and someone goes, oh, well, have you tried this? You're like, well, no, why not? Yeah, I should be doing, right, a good idea. You, you, I crave those conversations because they make you better. You yeah. just hear a good idea and you, it gives you, I'm, I'm also a trier, so I'll just go do it. Yeah. Figure out how it went after. Yeah. This conversation alone has given me several ideas <laughs> right? for teaching. Right. Like that, going back to that taking a line for a walk thing that Liz was talking about that she does at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we were just ways. talking, my teammates and I were just PLCing last week about um, kids and this kind of thing. And how could we get more of this connection to themselves into our time? And we start our day with our kids in an advisory setting, but it's very short. Mm -hmm. So this is the perfect frame for that. Yeah. You know, to start them in with just writing, writing yeah. into their day is a great soft start. And it's yeah. a great way for them to just ease into their day while thinking about the most important part of their day, which is them and what they need to get out of their day. So yeah. um, I love that. And I, I, I too, Noah wrote the same thing. I'm like, what a great, easy, low stakes and help them connect. When I do it in language arts, again, it starts to feel like this is some big thing I have to produce. Yeah. No, it's just, I'm not, no, it's for, kind of for you. It's not for yeah. me. It's for you. <laughs> Stacy, would you say that kids have the technical skill? I mean, most kids have the technical skill for writing by the fourth or fifth grade, right? I feel like more and more the kids I'm getting in sixth grade are pretty technically sound. They okay. don't know all the things, like they can't always name it, I find. Um, but they are most of them. 
you have that handful that yeah. really struggle to organize their thinking, their ideas, or they don't know how to develop an idea. Yeah. That's maybe the bigger problem I have is that that's the biggest hurdle is they yeah. don't know what idea development really is. Some of them just do it because they just do. Maybe they're good readers or their yeah. logical thought comes out on the page. That transfer from brain to keyboard or pen is hard for some mm-hmm. sixth graders. But by and large, they're pretty, pretty solid. This year in particular, I had really solid writers who came, which probably made it really easy to take some of the risks I did because I knew they knew enough to be proficient writers, make logical, clear writing, and then they could experiment a little more. Yeah. And that's the word. Experiment is the word. And so if a kid has a technical skill from fourth or fifth grade, all from sixth grade on, all we should be doing is practicing. Practice, mm-hmm. practice, practice. It just, that's all we really need to do is have a practice environment. That's it. And the mm-hmm. fact that we're still teaching, te- we're te- still teaching skills that were covered in, you know, like commas and stuff like that. Yeah, that's important, but that's not the key. <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, we. I'm preaching to the choir here, but, but I'm just, I'm thinking about this in relation to making that institutional shift. And um, that's just one of the small things that if, if, if teachers could just relax and say, you know, the kids have the skills, they just need, they just need practice. They know the rules of the game. And listen to what they said. This is what they said, um, that my reflective conversation with them led to what if your writing wasn't scored in any Mm -hmm. grading format? What if there was, it was never a conversation from the time you were five to now, what might be different about your writing? And that was another like an hmm. avenue we took and this, That's this right. is all the things they said I would take more risks because if I if a risk fails now it's too high stakes and so I don't try new things like I might Mrs. Rita earlier in the year when you said make an infographic or try this m- possible form instead of something I'm more comfortable with I was afraid to do it because I was afraid of the impact that could have on a grade I might get at some point mm-hmm. and so they the fear of perfectionism was real that was so crystal clear in the sonnet prompt. And then they said it again, you know, that I feel like my work has to have no mistakes. It has to be, you know, just this clean piece of writing. I would be more creative. I'd have less stress and pressure. I'd feel less anxious, you know, and every time they talked, I was like, oh, you know, like we've done this to you that they, they wouldn't. And the rushing, I, what a brilliant kid when he said, you bring these authors, these people who write books into our school, and it takes them years. They'll say, I had this idea when I was 10. I had this idea when I was 15, and I didn't write about it until I was 25. And I only get a week. Like, I, I get two weeks. I get a quarter. That's not enough time for me to really know what I have to say about something. I have to read, right. and I, have to do, I don't have time. And I was like, yeah, you don't. You're right. And why am I not making more space for you to have it? Like, what? And what could I change where I could mm-hmm. give you more space so that you would well, have that? And go, going back to what Noah's question about the magic and the mystery, that's where that happens is when they relax yep. and when they can be more creative and they can have more time and have more agency and autonomy. And yeah, that's where the magic happens and they mm-hmm. can unlimber in any way they want. So yeah, but we're all, we're up against it. We're, you know, 45 minutes yep. in and out or 50 minutes or whatever it is, 12 yep. weeks, eight weeks, six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say something controversial. Um, When I was in seventh grade, there were two English teachers. Um, One was Mrs. K, one was Mr. T. Not that Mr. T, no relation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Mr. T, this is going to be distracting now. um, He would have, his big thing was sentence diagramming. And then Mrs. K, her big thing was doing book groups, lit circles. 
Um, and I ended up with Mrs. K. My friends ended up with Mr. T. And they did sentence diagramming. And I kept thinking like my whole year, why am I not learning how to diagram sentences? Am I going to be falling behind? And I worried about like, because I was that kind of weird. I was only good at English. I was terrible at math. So I had to like, I got really worried about the one subject I was good at. And I wondered if it was going to come back to haunt me. And the thing is, it did not. In fact, I don't think that my classmates were any better at grammar than I was. And the, only, the, the big difference was I read lots of books and they yeah. diagrammed lots of sentences. Yeah. I know that there's yeah. a, some correlation versus causation going on here, but I can say in my specific case, I never learned how to diagram a sentence and I became an English teacher. Right. So right. is diagramming sentences maybe a waste of time? In my small sample size situation, I would say absolutely. Well, but you know, what's yeah. interesting too, is that by, I did diagram sentences in the sixth grade, um, but I will say it taught me how words work. And then I noticed mm -hmm. more. So like for every pathway, if you know, you have an, it's what we were saying before about teaching the writer, not the piece mm -hmm. of writing. If I know I'm not being effective because I'm misusing um, a part of speech or I'm mm -hmm. not writing enough with enough fluency and I could improve because I could be more effective if I was more descriptive, suddenly I'll figure out that stuff Yeah. Um, or through a mentor or other things. And we can put those in kids' hands because we're teaching them to be writers, not teaching them to write a piece of writing. Yeah. And you found your way because you were a reader who wrote and that was your pathway. And it, I think that's it. They'll glean what they need when they need it, if they know they yeah. need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, absolutely, with, you know, in Canada, in my part of Canada, where I'm living now in British Columbia, their uh, teaching standards say this, um, in fifth grade, fourth and fifth grade, play with language in order to know how to use it purposefully. Wow. Wow. That's a standard. <laughs> That's a standard? It's in British Columbia's curriculum, provincial yeah. curriculum. Yeah. What if it were like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think is what yeah. we may be getting at, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How they spend their time versus um, what they're supposed to learn. Um, that's a how you spend your time kind of standard. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, that's how they should spend their time. The, the engagement's off the hook when they get that opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So I didn't expect for this to be a big thing that came up again and again this season. But one thing as I think back on all the episodes is it, to be a really good teacher doesn't just mean that you go in and you teach well. It means that you're fighting against a system that maybe isn't always designed to make it easy for good teaching. It isn't always designed to make it easy for students to grow into what they might eventually be. And if I'm honest, I go back and forth on whether or not this is okay. You know, like the whole trope about you can't have good without evil. You can't have light without darkness. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell calls it desirable difficulties. Those things that make you push. You have to have some resistance in order to grow. Blah, blah, blah. But then at the same time, we also know that if we don't fight this system, if we don't do something to try to overcome the problems in the system, 
it's not always a desirable difficulty. Sometimes it's a, diff a difficulty that swallows people whole. And it's a big question. And I was so happy to be able to talk through it with these two brilliant minds. It was so great to talk to Stacy. It was so great to talk to Liz. And this has been a really fun season. So in case you haven't noticed, this is the last episode of this season. Next week, we're going to be taking a summer break, but we're not really taking a full-on summer break. We're going to be rebroadcasting some episodes of a podcast I used to do for the Ohio Council of Teachers of English, also known as Octella. Yes, in partnership with Octella, we are going to be sharing episodes of the Speaking and Listening podcast, starting with my interview with Smokey Daniels and a whole host of other amazing, amazing teachers. So I hope that you'll stick with us this summer. Keep on checking out our episodes. And before I sign off, don't forget to check out this episode's show notes for how you can follow our guests on Twitter, how you can follow me on Twitter, how you can find out more about the work of the Ohio Writing Project. So it's been an amazing year. It's been a challenging year. Best of times, worst of times, all that. But thank you for tuning in. To write answers.